This is Relatively Cosmic. So I'm here with Vincent Ledvina, who is going to be helping out with ground operations for the LAMP mission. Vince, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Nice. Good. So how? what exactly are you going to be doing during the LAMP mission, and how did you become involved with the LAMP mission as well? Yeah, so for the LAMP mission, what I'll be doing is essentially... Um, operating these imagers that are based in Fort Yukon. And I believe there's two different cameras. There's a ZWO Astro modified camera. Then there's also a CMOS camera um, up there as well. And I don't actually have to set anything up, but what I'm doing is just making sure that everything goes smoothly. So I'll be going up with these two researchers from I think it's um, the Electronics Institute in Japan or something or some I don't know uh, university in Japan that they're from I can't remember what the name is but they're going to be setting up the cameras and then giving me some instructions on how to operate them everything should be automatic so I actually shouldn't have to do any major work when the rocket launches it should just do everything automatically but in the off chance that something does go wrong they want me up there just to make sure that you know, there's somebody there that can fix it in real time. So I'll be stationed at uh, Fort Yukon at this um, radar facility. Essentially, it's a long range radar X Cold War outpost in the middle of nowhere. And I'll be there for up to three weeks during the launch window. And I guess to answer your second question about how I got involved with this, it was kind of a sort of random thing. My mentor, Liz, she works at NASA and one of her close friends is Alexa Halford, who is the PI for this mission. So I think they were just on a call together and they wanted some student involvement. So she just kind of name dropped me. And then um, I was the backup to um, Andy, actually. <laughs> and then Andy couldn't do it. So they asked me to do it. That's wonderful. Well, we'll be hearing a lot more from Vincent Ledvina, uh, or as I call him, Vince, and you should too, um, in a future episode. But Vince, thanks for stopping by, and best of luck to you on, on LAMP, and hopefully we get some good footage and some good data from the rocket. Yeah, hopefully I have some time before they actually launch it so I can get some Aurora shots. Yeah. It's supposed to be clear. I mean, the launch window doesn't start till February 24th, and I'm up there on the 19th, so I have like five days just to chill, which is going to be sweet. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be great. All right, so that's the, I'll cut that out because it's. All righty, everybody. So I am joined now by Dr. Mike Shumko. He is a NASA postdoctoral program fellow. And Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm, I'm great. Anytime I get to talk about science with anybody, uh, my day is made. So I have a feeling this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you about the LAMP Sauny rocket mission. Honestly, it's this sort of science is what I've been studying all through grad school and now uh, my postdoc position. And there's always a little bit of missing data or that little bit of data that we've been missing or we haven't gathered yet. And this Sauny rocket was a perfect opportunity to get at least a little bit of a taste 
of this more complete data set. So before we get into the LAMP mission, could you give us a brief overview of, of who you are and what led you to come into the position that you are in currently? Yeah, so uh, so as you already said, my name is Mike Shumko, and I uh, my parents are both astronomers. I actually grew up in, uh, in an observatory in Crimea. That's a long story, and I know with the current geopolitical stuff, it's uh, kind of a complicated mess over there. Mm-hmm. However, my parents are both astronomers, so in a way, you know, as I say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So in a way, I was already sort of destined to go into the career of science or astronomy or physics mm-hmm. in particular. So I went and got a bachelor's of science from the University of uh, California in Santa Cruz uh, back in 2014. And then I immediately went to Montana State University where I pursued a uh, PhD in physics. And so then I graduated in uh, end of 2019 uh, or early 2020. So that coincided, uh, unfortunately, right with the start of pandemic. And mm-hmm. so my postdoctoral uh, career has been kind of overshadowed by working from home. So it's a, been a little odd, but it even it, there was a silver lining to it. Even if I wasn't socializing with my uh, cl- collaborators as much, like in person, especially, I did do, it was a lot of time to self-reflect and focus on the science topics I really cared about and it kind of gave me, I was in a privileged position to have space for me to work on my science projects. And so far it's uh, been paying off. In, in graduate school, what I, uh, we got thrust into working with a CubeSat mission called the Firebird 2 CubeSats. It's, it's an mm-hmm. acronym. It's uh, basically too long for me to remember, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, they were launched right after I started graduate school. And I got thrust into the position of operating these CubeSats and getting data from them and debugging them. And CubeSats are notorious for their hardware issues. So this gave me a good, you know, real world opportunity to, you know, sit in a control room and with an antenna on the roof pointing to a satellite and communicating and all the, all the wonder and all the frustration that comes with that. And so the primary objective of the Firebird mission was to, was to characterize what we call the energy spectrum of this precipitation called microburst. So now that I've muddied the water, let me back up a second. So outside <laughs> the earth, you have the twin radiation, uh, Van Allen radiation belts. So you have the inner radiation mm-hmm. belt that's mostly protons and you have the outer radiation belt that's mostly energetic electrons. And these, uh, these belts are cute, uh, very energetic. So for example, when astronauts are in space, they have to coordinate when are they going to uh, take a spacewalk because they could experience a lot more radiation that they want to actually be exposed to? And in a way, it was, it's actually a funny uh, story from I, I heard, I uh, haven't verified yet, but that the International Space Station was supposedly, uh, um, was supposed to be a much lower inclination. Uh, that being like how, f- what's the f- furthest north and furthest south it'll get. Mm-hmm. However, because the Russians are involved and they have the Baikonur Cosmodrome in uh, Kazakhstan, it's fairly far north, more north than they originally intended. But since you can only launch rockets at a you know, specific uh, set of orbits, they, uh, they came up with a compromise where the International Space Station actually went to higher latitudes. So they do actually experience a little bit of uh, the high radiation but they have a lot of planners to help them you know, figure out when is the best time to go outside, when should you stay inside. 
And another part, uh, another fun trivia fact is during the Apollo missions, they also had a concern about it. But luckily, because the Apollo spacecraft just went straight out to the moon effectively, they passed through the radiation belts really quickly, so they didn't actually experience too much radiation. Uh, so that's sort of the general background. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was I was saying that's that's very interesting. That just, and I'm also thankful that they compromised with the International Space Station because if it wasn't at such a high inclination parts of the United States might not even get to see the, uh, the international space station. So in a way I'm very thankful, thankful for that because anytime it flies over, I have the heavens above app on my phone and it alerts me anytime it flies over and I go out with my camera and I take an exposure of it. And I love that thing until the cows come home. It's great. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad they made that compromise and it's, yeah, the Van Allen belts I've always found very interesting. And I've always wondered how, what the relationship of the Van Allen belts were with the astronauts that are in low Earth orbit and then the, the astronauts that went through the translunar injection and then when they were on the moon as well. So that was, that was great. So you were part of the LAMP mission that successfully launched, which congratulations, by the way, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and so could you explain what the LAMP mission is? I know it's an acronym. So like, what's the acronym stand for and what are some of the objectives that the mission uh, was to accomplish? That's a great question. Yeah, so LAMP sounds, uh, stands for Lost Through Auroral Microburst Pulsations. So there's a lot of jargon, I think, wrapped <laughs> up in there, like auroral pulsations and microburst. And so uh, when they talk about the auroral pulsations, what they're referring to is pulsating aurora. And it's a type of what we call diffuse aurora that... Uh, diffuse meaning when you when you're on the ground looking up at it, it doesn't have rough edges or doesn't have very defined edges, kind of like the auroral arcs do. And it's a lot more dim. It's dimmer than the than the arcs, as I saw with my own eyes as well. And um, <clears throat> so that's one part of it is this you know aurora light that's created by these low energy electrons, you know, on the order of a kilo a kilo electron volts, and uh, there's a counterpart uh, form of electrons that rain down from space uh, we call electron microbursts. They're way more energetic, uh, or typically they're way more energetic than this pulsing aurora on the order of between 100 to 1,000 times more energetic. Wow. And so these are the electrons that can cause a lot of havoc you know, to people in space, to satellites. And there's even some research uh, going on about its impact on the atmosphere through a chemical production of odd hydrogen and nitrogen molecules that uh, moderate or uh, decrease the amount of ozone in the atmosphere. So it's not like a big, big deal where you have to freak out about it. It's completely natural. It's been happening for millennia ever since the earth existed. However, it, understanding it will help us maybe to predict uh, the dynamics of the atmosphere a little bit more. And so these two phenomena for, for about half a century, ever since the, our first satellites went space, I've been studied separately. And there's some older scientists from the 60s who thought their two were related, but the instrumentation wasn't great at the time. And so now we have better instrumentation. We have we essentially, I think the science community forgotten that they're, they're related or they haven't uh, explored too much. So the LAMP sounding rocket, I think is one of the most, uh, the first modern experiment designed to see if this 
fairly harmless pro, uh, sorry, fairly harmless pulsing aurora light, then electrons that come that create this light are also accompanied by these much higher electrons that actually don't emit light in the visible spectrum. They emit X-rays from uh, Bremster lung uh, deceleration. And those X-rays actually don't make it to the ground because there's too much atmosphere in the way. And we can actually see those X-rays from high altitude balloons. And so, but still those electrons are there. And if you can see, if you can understand where the pulsing aurora is happening, you may be able to ultimately understand where these energetic electrons, the hazardous electrons are coming in. And so effectively the lamp sounding, uh, the lamp sounding rocket uh, payload goals are to study, you know, uh, is to first understand is the visible pulsating aurora related to these microbursts? And then what is the size, you know, how big are these microbursts? Or sorry, how big is the actual precipitation region? And uh, I think the third question was, is see how far, uh, how high the energy spectrum goes of it. So, you know, these electrons associated with hundreds of kilo electron volts or all of a few mega electron volts. And that's, you know, the one way to find out is to just be right there and take the measurements. Wow, that's... I I'm I'm glad that I got you to uh, come on here because I don't think anyone could have explained it better than that. I, I I I truly enjoyed that because I made this show not only to kind of break down um, complicated subjects and then kind of break them down into ordinary language, but also I wanted to have the show for people to nerd out every once in a while because I feel like even though science communication is great. I, at least from my perspective, I sometimes miss just saying the normal scientific definition of things and rattling off information without any inhibitors in my way. So that's great. And with the pulsating Aurora, I've always been, since I moved up to North Dakota, I've always been fascinated with it. Um, and I remember the first time I saw it, it was, it was, I think like my fourth or fifth time seeing the Northern lights in general. And I'm like, wait, why is it like flickering like a flame? It was so interesting. And when I go back and look at my, at my camera footage, when I make a time-lapse, I'm like, wow, this, this looks so cool. It looks like the sky is lit up with a green flame. It's, it's really cool. So yeah, thank you for that. And <laughs> And so with the LAMP mission, so you currently work at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and the LAMP mission launched from the Poker Flat Research Range all the way in Fairbanks, Alaska. So how did you become part of this mission, traveling from the East Coast all the way up to the Great White North of Alaska? So I'm guessing you're not asking about the logistics of getting there, but how I get involved with the project. Yes. Uh, to answer uh, to answer that question, I think it's uh, my honest answer is luck. It's okay. pure luck. So in graduate school, I uh, basically spent six or five and a half years studying these electron microbursts. And I remember a discussion with uh, one of my collaborators or my advisor. I don't remember who it was, but I asked, you know, could there be an auroral light signature of these microbursts. And I remember them saying like, ah, oh, probably not. And so, you know, being a naive, uh, you know, PhD student, I was like, okay, that's true. They've, they've done the, they've done their research. They know it's not related. And however, when I, when I got to 
uh, when it got to Goddard and with my current uh, mentor, Dr. Alexa Hafford, who's, who's now the PI of LAMP, uh, she pushed me uh, towards looking at our all sky imager data. So I got into that side of things. And so I've been working on this for about a, about a year now, comparing data from CubeSats to imager data on the ground and doing the analysis and writing Python, uh, Python packages for that. And so in the fall of 2021, the original PI, Sarah Jones, or Dr. Sarah Jones, stepped down for personal reasons. And so my mentor was selected as her replacement. And so we both, uh, and since I'm her uh, mentee, I was included as part of the mission. And so I effectively just became part of it because, my, because of my mentor. So if you had to take away anything from the trip, whether it be any of the scientific data or even sights and sounds from the trip all the way up to Alaska, what would you, if you had to summarize your trip in a couple of sentences, how do you think it went? Oh, I think the trip itself was spectacular. I would say I've, you know, I've lived in Montana for six years or so, and I've never seen the aurora in my own eyes. I, I'm jealous that you have actually in, <laughs> in North Dakota. I, there's plenty of times when I hear about it that was happening or it happened and somebody was able to, able to capture it, but if either it was like too cloudy or I'm too sleepy or whatnot, but here the opportunity of poker flat the privilege of working full nights and being in a place that's set, uh, set up to see the aurora and seeing it for the first time, that was such a breathtaking and privileging event. And the, actually the, yeah, I would say seeing the aurora is probably one of the most humbling, humbling experiences because, you know, you read about all of it, all, you see photos on the, on the internet, seeing the videos about it, but seeing it with their own eyes, just like middle of the night, you know, it's obviously pitch black. There's no moon. It's like silent. You know, everything's covered in snow and you just see these lights dancing. It's just so surreal. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's hard to describe in words. Yeah. I, I remember the first time, the first time I saw it, it was very underwhelming. And I knew like, it wasn't going to be like the spectacular green images that everybody sees. But we went out, uh, me and my buddy Vince, who was also on the LAMP mission as well, we went out and it was just a faint green arc, uh, barely hugging the horizon. And I'm like, oh, okay, but hey, this is, the, this is the Northern Light. This is great. And subsequent nights after that, it was amazing. And by far, my favorite night so far was November 4th of this past year, where the entire sky was green and <laughs> I was losing my collective mind. It was absolutely bonkers. So now, what? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, oh, when you saw the, when you saw the full sky of the Aurora, was it coming straight down at you? Yeah. Yeah. Was... So I, <laughs> I, I learned it's called coronal Aurora mm -hmm. and I will say, don't try to Google it because it, anything that has the word Corona in it will have the <laughs> obvious uh, virus related news to it. Mm -hmm. However, on YouTube, uh, yeah, if, if anyway, if you're smart enough to do searching, you might find the videos about it. And basically, Corona Aurora is when the Aurora is coming straight down at you. And I remember like when I was there at, at, at poker, that was the night we launched right about an hour before or half an hour before we, the, uh, the rocket um, uh, launched. And 
it was just so surreal. It's so bright. You could see the purples. I thought I saw a bunch of white. I saw the greens and it was coming on off. It was turning on off so quickly. It just, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm old at this point, but in my old, you know, when I was growing up, I used to use a windows media player on like windows XP. Oh yeah. (laughs) And it, for songs, you can have some sort of like a background turned on where it has these crazy hallucinogenic patterns that show up that according to your music. And that's, that's the thing I thought about is I'm like, my head is looking straight up. I'm like with my awe, you know, my mouth, you know, just fully open, just staring at this thing. And, oh man, I don't know. I, I, I'll never shut up about it. If you uh, <laughs> give me the, the space. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. And I, I will echo your statement. Seeing the Aurora Borealis is very humbling, especially to a person that either has never seen it before and, and has never heard of it or to a person who has heard of it, but all, has also never seen it. So that's great. Mm-hmm. So the lamp mission was, the, or the instrumentation was, was launched on a Black Brant sounding rocket from Poker Flat Research Range. So what kind of instruments were on board of this rocket? So I, I would say uh, I'll go into the rocket part, but I want to mention the other important element a bit. <laughs> but so the rocket payload contained a whole plethora of instruments. They have their own acronyms, which I think that's not as relevant in this context. But so they mainly contained uh, particle detectors and imagers on board. So the idea is that you would measure these electrons uh, directly. And because building instruments they're sensitive to all energies is really hard. You actually have to have multiple instruments, one measuring very low energy electrons, one's measuring medium energy, and one's measuring high energy electrons. There's technically a fourth one in there, but so essentially my, my point is you need to have multiple of these uh, particle detectors on board. Have you also had a imager on board on something called a despawn platform? So part of the rocket flight, the rocket needs to spin at about one, RP, uh, uh, one revolution per second. So the rocket can ballistically stay pointed in its, current, its, its desired trajectory. Basically, same idea for a bullet. Mm-hmm. And so as the rocket is spinning, and say if you, you want to take an image of the Aurora looking down. So looking down from your, you know, the rocket is at 400 kilometer altitude. The pulsating aurora typically happens at about 100 kilometers. So you're way above it. And so the idea is you're measuring the electrons directly there. And you also want to see, you know, what's what's below you to see if you can see the pulsating aurora down there. And so that was actually uh, the in, uh, the engineering part that was really exciting uh, because it worked and we had our doubts for a while. Uh, but it's this thing called a despawn platforms that essentially spins the opposite way at the same rate as the rocket. And I don't really know the engineering details of that, but the end result is that it goes from a, you know, I just remember seeing the footage of the camera where the camera itself is spinning with a rocket and you're like, I don't know what I'm looking at. And then it slows down and starts panning as actually pointing in a very particular direction. And then this, once it stops, the image is like perfect. So, oh wow, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, basically on the rocket, like I said, particle detectors and we have an imager. And I think the other half of the, of the, of the mission was the ground-based instruments, mainly in this small village of Vinatai, uh, maybe call it a town. I'm not sure, but it's just North of Poker Flat. It, probably has a few dozen people living there. We, in Venatai, we set up a 
uh, all sky imager looking straight up. And the idea is that the rocket will have its apogee or the highest point in its trajectory right over Venati. So you have the cameras looking straight up from the ground, look at the pulsating aurora, while the rocket up there is seeing the electrons directly there, as well as seeing the from the camera up there seeing down. So you have these multiple vantage points, and from uh, from mapping out you know where the rocket is in the sky and applying some other analysis, you can say you know how correlated are these electrons with the light that's emitted right below the rocket. Uh, and so we had uh, plenty of other instruments that are taking data like the Pfizer or the poker flat incoherent scatter radar was operational at this time. We had these other instruments called rheometers, which are effectively antennas that look for attenuation of cosmic rays coming down from space. But particle precipitation, like the ones we study, also cause a decrease in the, uh, in the cosmic ray absorption. So you can infer this energetic precipitation. So and also, we coordinate with other CubeSat missions, including UCLA's Elfin CubeSats and Montana State's Firebird CubeSats. So, so they took data to, uh, around the same time as well. So where there's a whole large collection of data just from the LAMP mission itself, also all the, all the other missions that are around the time. So yeah, we have plenty of data. I'm excited to analyze it. That's stop right there <laughs> that's great so it launched uh, i think it was about a couple weeks ago um i got a twitter notification that it had a, a successful launch and how long from that point until some undetermined point in the future would it take for you all to comb through all that data that was collected that's a really good question and uh, my short answer is i don't know and <laughs> Other people may not know it. The, the progress of science is maybe not as quickly as we all like it to be. Mm -hmm. However, if you want to do a very careful uh, and thorough job at it, we have to take our time. So currently, as, as I'm aware, the data, I mean, you get the data off the rocket immediately. Like the rocket payload was not recoverable. It, it landed in uh, northern Alaska and they have a program. If some rancher or some hiker finds it, they can... Um, they can report it and it can be retrieved, but we're, but the data was collected immediately. But it's you know it's in binary data that all the packets are in a mix. So as far as I know, the data was transmitted to Wallops uh, uh, rocket facility here on the east coast, right next to uh, or it's in Maryland on the coast where they also launch these Saudi rockets. And the data is currently being processed there. And I've seen some data from at least one of the instruments. So I think it's individual instrument teams are analyzing their, their component of the telemetry from the rocket. And mm. so that's slowly starting to, um, we're first starting, we're just starting to see the plots from all the different instruments. And we also have, we just got the rocket trajectory analyzed just about a week ago and we did magnetic field modeling to figure out, you know, where was the rocket's magnetic field footprint. So you can actually do the correlation analysis correctly. Uh, so, I think I would say stay tuned, but you probably will hear. <laughs> I know it's not a satisfying answer. I, I totally acknowledge that. But I, I would say you can hopefully see some results on the Twitter account, I would say, within like maybe a month or so. That's, that's, my, that's my hopeful uh, guesstimate. That's, that's awesome, man. I can't wait to 
wake up one day and, and see news from the data collected from this mission. And I'm sure it will be quite a treat for not only all the people that worked on the mission, but for people who, like myself, or even people who have never even heard of the LAMP mission, maybe one day they'll stumble across this and be like, oh, wow, this is pretty interesting. I'm really glad they did this mission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's... I actually appreciate, I appreciate the interview because we, uh, I think sounding rockets historically have not been advertised really well, mm-hmm. or they seem that the data gets forgotten or the launch gets forgotten. And so uh, that's something that the, some of the science team members and I were discussing of, you know, this outreach is just great for us because, you know, if you're doing great, very interesting science, you know, who doesn't love to launch rockets? There's a, you know, a huge engineering component to all of this too. So it's not just scientists, you know, playing around with models. It's, you know, a lot of hard engineering work that goes into it that, that cannot be neglected. And um, yeah, I'm uh, super excited and I, yeah, I have my own mission aspirations. I could talk, uh, maybe talk at a later time about. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I mean, I'm a huge space flight nerd, whether it's the smallest of rockets or the, the largest of rockets or the same thing with satellites, whether it's a little tiny CubeSat or a thing as big as the International Space Station. I, I love them. And my first, one of my first rocket launches that I saw was from Wallops when I was living in Maryland in 2020. Got to see a sounding rocket uh, lift off from, from Wallops and got to see the smoke trail from that. So I love sounding rockets. Have a have a history with them, and I think they're just as cool as the Falcon Nines or the 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 Atlas Fives, and it's it's great. So with the Lamp mission, there was a little bit of some I don't want to say advertisement, but uh, some notice to some citizen scientists out there how they might have gotten involved with the mission. So could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so I am not familiar exactly with uh, with that specific call. I think it was through the Aurora Source uh, program. Okay, and that's as far as I know about that one. But I think what they're uh, but historically over, I think it was maybe about five years ago or so. There was this huge discovery made of this of this light phenomena. I'm careful. I can't use the word Aurora because it's not technically Aurora, <laughs> but this thing called Steve. Oh yeah, and. It was actually called Steve, but it was not an acronym at first because they were like, what is this random thing? Let's just call it Steve. And so the way it came about is uh, it was a bunch of citizen scientists up in um, Canada were taking you know, photographs of the Aurora and somehow stumbled into one of our scientists. I believe it was here actually at Goddard. And they're looking at it and they've noticed that they have no idea how to explain this one weird type of very thin you know light that's you know showing up in these images and so they started now asking other citizen scientists in canada if they've seen this before and they and long story short there was a paper in i believe 2018 where they actually uh, took images from a few of different citizen scientists and because when you take a photo you know you have the timestamp from the camera and you can just ask the photographer where were they, and once you know what stars they're looking at, you have you know an idea of where they're located, what time, where they the camera's pointed, and essentially you're able to triangulate where this light is being emitted from, like what altitude and where in the sky. So this paper was the first one to look into this, and it was like, hey, this is a phenomena that we haven't uh, haven't seen before. So they they called it Steve, and so. 
the only reason it was discovered uh, when it was is exactly because of these uh, citizen scientists. Um, and for just for a little bit of reference, it's actually now technically a backronym. It stands for Strong Thermal Emission Velocity Enhancement. Mm -hmm. And so kind of more boring now, I would say. <laughs> it's just fun to just call it Steve and have it not have not have it mean anything. But, you know, scientists always got to have their acronyms. And so in this case, I would say with uh, with the LAMP sounding rocket, I would, you know, it's the same kind of kind of story, you know, you having a bunch of amateur uh, or not, I would say amateur uh, astronomer, citizen scientists with really great camera equipment, taking videos and taking uh, pictures all around in Canada and Alaska. And so that can, you know, we scientists always love more data. That's, that's basically what it boils down to. And it also, they were, they're taking photos of the launch itself and Actually, from some of the, you know, while the, the cameras they use is probably not scientific grade, they're still definitely can be very, utilized to figure out, you know, how big was the pulsing aurora or how, how physically big was the pulsing aurora extent, you know, was it all the way from Alaska all the way through the eastern part of Canada or was it more localized? These sorts of questions we could do our best to answer them as scientists, but we really need the citizen scientist component, especially when it's coordinated like this, to help us to better understand, you know, the bigger picture of what was happening. Uh, that's great. And Steve, I I have this weird fascination with Steve. Ever since I, I first saw it, I I was once again with Vince. He's kind of like my partner in crime when I go Aurora chasing. It's always me and him. We always go out together and just saw this thin, uh, thin pink ribbon just appear out of the sky. I'm like, what in the world is that? And then it took me a couple seconds to register. Oh, hey, that's Steve. And so when I take out some friends that have never seen the Aurora Borealis before, and there was one time that Steve came out and I said, oh, hey, that's Steve. And everyone was like, wait, who, where, what? <laughs> and that's why I had to explain that to them. But yeah, Steve and the pulsating Aurora, those are the, the two um, auroral characteristics at, with an asterisk next to Steve uh, that I find really intriguing uh, just because of how they present themselves in, in the night sky. And yeah, that's great. Well, Mike, thank you so very much for joining me on the podcast today. And yeah, it was, it was great talking to you. Yeah, thank you for hosting me. It was quite a pleasure. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with Dr. Mike Shumko.